Okay, that's enough. I almost lost control there for a minute. I, you know, I do feel quite at home here. It's, it's amazing how quickly you can come into a new place and feel very welcome, and not just welcome, but feel at home. In fact, when I drove in this morning, somebody was in my parking space. <laughs> kind of upset about that, actually. No, but seriously, I, I do feel at home. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's open in the teaching of his word. Father, it is with a humble heart and with a willingness, Father, to hear from your spirit that I stand before you and before your people gathered to present your word. And I pray, Father, that the time we spend in it would be honoring to it and to you. That the truth, Father, that you have placed in your word would be the thing we speak and that we would have the courage, Father, that when the truth is different than we think, that we would change our thinking rather than changing your word. And I pray, Father, that for whatever purpose you have brought me here, for whatever purpose you have brought every person in this room here, I pray, Father, that that purpose would be seen as your power. It would be seen, Father, as your grace and as your love for us, and that it would not be squandered, Father, by a heart too hard to hear from you. But rather, we would receive, Father, what you have brought here tonight in the way it was intended, Father, for our benefit, to your glory, and for the growth of your kingdom. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. On September 11, 2001, terrorists hijacked four planes and flew them into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and a field in Pennsylvania, resulting in the deaths of about 3,076 people. On April 20, 1999, two teenagers entered their high school in Littleton, Colorado, and systematically murdered 19 people before taking their own lives. And on December 26, 2004, an earthquake in the Indian Ocean produced a tidal wave that destroyed coastlines from Africa to Indonesia, resulting in the deaths of more than 174,000 people. These three dramatic events, separated by time and great distance, would appear to have little in common. Each took their toll from different communities under different circumstances. Each had different causes and different consequences. But for all their differences, all three of these events shared at least one thing in common. All three events so shocked our conscience, they so stunned the world by the horror and by the senselessness of what happened that all three prompted a common question. How could a loving God permit such things to happen? Of the seven topics I've chosen for my series on the sovereignty of God, I imagine that none will make so obvious and yet at the same time so controversial An opening statement is the one I will make tonight. God is sovereign over every event that occurs in all his creation throughout all of time. On the one hand, my statement is obviously true, because I'm sure we can all agree that there is no higher power in all creation than the very creator himself. 
that the God who has the power to speak the entire universe and all its contents into existence merely with a word from his mouth must certainly have all the power and authority over it. But there is no other power that could possibly intervene to contend with, much less match the power of God. In fact, when we ask that question itself, how can God allow such things? We are indirectly acknowledging that God has the capability to prevent those things, which is the reason why we ask why he did not. Charles Spurgeon said it far better than I think I ever could when he wrote this. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their course. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of a devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Now, on the other hand, my opening statement, if we ponder it long enough, ultimately leads us to controversy. Because as soon as we begin to consider all that the Scripture has to say about God's control over the events of history, we find ourselves wrestling with issues like evil and sin and man's relationship to God. It's as though, I think, as we first consider this issue, we all begin by essentially drawing a line in the sand around ourselves. A circle. And we stand in this circle and we say God is outside that circle and we are inside. And God's sovereignty over things extends to everything outside that circle. But this side of the circle is mine. And all that happens inside this circle is in my control. And then we read some scripture. We come across a few verses here or there or details in a story. And they force us to erase that first line and draw it again a little closer. And then maybe again a little closer still. Now, I have no hope whatsoever of addressing every aspect of this complex and literally mind-boggling topic tonight. But I do believe there is so much more that we could be saying on this issue and typically more than is being addressed in most pulpits across the country. And along the way, brothers and sisters, I hope I can show you why this is not an issue that should be reserved for discussions among academics. This is not a topic that only pastors and theologians should take on. This is not some abstract, irrelevant, unprofitable debate. Let me explain. The issue of God's authority and the extent of his control over the events of this world cuts to the very core of our faith and its meaning. It's the foundation for our confidence, for example, in the prophecy we find in the Old Testament. It is the basis for our hope in God's promises given in the New Testament. The ability for God to exercise control over all space and time and matter is the very definition of what it means to be the true living God. The creator, the one we desire to worship. So make no mistake, this discussion matters because if it were possible to cast some doubt on the sovereignty of our God over all that he created, 
and all that he has declared in his word, then we would also have to cast some doubt on his ability to carry it out. We'd have to cast doubt on his ability to fulfill the very promises we put our hope in. And if there is any doubt in God's ability to carry out the promises he has put in this book according to his will, then as Paul said in his first letter to the church in Corinth, we are of all men most to be pitied. Because we have put our faith in something that doesn't deserve it. If it's true that God's sovereignty is limited. So tonight my goal is to help you take a few steps toward appreciating and understanding the sovereignty of God over world events. A lesson I'm calling having a common purpose. And as always, the understanding we seek is not one that's philosophical. And it's not one that's worldly. And it's probably not going to be one that appeals to our pride. But it's a biblical view. And in order to kind of get where we're going, I think it's good if we took stock for a moment of where we're starting from. And in my view, from reading the Bible, from studying it, from looking at other Christian writing, from talking to many Christians I know, I believe I think you can group all who think on this issue into one of three groups. All opinion on this issue of God's sovereignty over his creation is essentially in one of three groups. And I'm talking obviously about people who even believe in God to begin with. First, there's group one. These are the people who believe that God created the world. He created the universe. They do believe in a higher power. But he did it essentially like someone spinning a top. And now he stands back and he watches it. Watches it go to conclusion. And like that spinning top, God's hand never again touches his creation or intervenes in its course. It's on its own. And then there's a second group. Second group of people believe that God created the world and he continues to intervene in that world from time to time, changing the course of history to, see, to suit his purpose. They believe he would intervene in both natural and supernatural ways, always for good purpose, of course, ultimately to bring events to his desired outcome. And, of course, implicit in this second view is the principle that some things lie outside God's control, outside his sovereignty. Things like evil, for example. This view, this second group would hold the view that evil is an independent force, that it operates apart from God's desires and intentions and against his will. Many would also in this group agree that men themselves operate in freedom, directly out of control of God, that God does not intervene to change their minds or to change their will. And then finally, there's a third group. The third group has the view of God's sovereignty that it has no limit. All things were created by him and are sustained by him. He doesn't just intervene once in a while to redirect history from time to time. He literally writes every page of history. He directs all things. He controls all things. He governs all things so that everything may happen according to his preordained plan. One example of this view can be seen in the 1689 Confession of Faith held by the historic Reformed Baptist movement in London. This is one paragraph out of the Confession of Faith of the Reformed Baptists. God, who in infinite power and wisdom has created all things, upholds, directs, controls, and governs them, both animate and inanimate, great and small, 
by a providence supremely wise and holy and in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable decisions of his will. He fulfills the purposes for which he created them so that his wisdom, power, and justice together with his infinite goodness and mercy might be praised and glorified. Nothing happens by chance or outside the sphere of God's providence. As God is the first cause of all events, they happen immutable and infallibly according to his foreknowledge and decree to which they stand related. Yet by his providence, God controls them. So that second causes operating either as fixed laws or freely or independence upon other causes play their part in bringing them about. It's a wordy way of saying God is the boss. Now, some might criticize those who hold this view, this third group's view, as merely adhering to fatalism. It's simply a fatalist perspective. To which Charles Spurgeon who, by the way, was himself a member of this third group, said this. What is fate? Fate is this. Whatever is, must be. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some great end. Fate does not say that. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. I think it's fair to say that most unbelievers today likely fall in the first of those three groups. And obviously I'm talking about unbelievers who still have some view of a higher power. Most fall in that first group. They are content to acknowledge the existence of some higher power. Their pride and their hard hearts, however will never allow them to concede that this higher power actually has any influence over them, much less any control over their lives and over their future. He's up there. We're down here. Each of us keeps to ourselves. Sadly, even a few Christians fall into that group, I've found. Most Christians, on the other hand, probably fall in group two. They're aware of God's ultimate control over the larger events in the world. Over history, I guess. And they believe in his prophecy, certainly, but often they attribute it and its accuracy more to his foreknowledge, his knowing the future, in other words, rather than to his providence, his determining the future. But their belief in his sovereignty turns to uncertainty when deciding where to draw that line I spoke of earlier, that line in his control over smaller, everyday matters of our lives, over our personal choices, or over the effects of sin and evil in the world. That's where the line gets fuzzy for people in group two. Now, few Christians today, on the other hand, are willing to venture into category three. In fact, few have even heard it suggested that there is no event, not the smallest, meaningless event of everyday life, not our personal decisions, whether impulsive or whether well-considered, and not Satan, certainly, and not his evil realm, that none of those things in their minds would be under God's control. They're surprised to find out there are people who think they are, which is what Category 3 believes. And yet, ironically, when we all consider a great tragedy like the ones I started with tonight, and when we're tempted in the moment to ask how could a loving God allow such things, we are unknowingly placing ourselves in Group 3, if only for a moment. 
Because even by just asking that question, you are stating, for example, that you believe God could change the decisions and the actions of those two disturbed teenagers in Colorado. You're stating that you believe he could have altered the paths and the opportunities of September 11th so that those 19 hijackers never got on those planes or those planes never took off or something else stopped them. And you're arguing that God could have held back the sea and stopped that tsunami from devastating so many people's lives. All of those things imply group three. So could he? Could he have done those things? What does the Bible say about God's control over his creation? Well, let's go through this step by step. First, God is sovereign over the substance of his creation. Over all weather, over all natural forces, over all the animal kingdom. And the Bible is full of examples to prove that point. In almost every book of the Old Testament, God is credited at times and in various places with bringing huge harvests, bringing famine, on the other hand, bringing rain and then bringing drought, bringing lightning, bringing thunder, bringing life and death through those circumstances. Psalms 147, verse 15, for example. He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. That's a general statement in scripture about God's sovereignty over the weather, for example. But the story of Moses, for example, in Egypt is a tour de force of God's sovereignty over the forces of nature. You have hail, you have insects, you have animals, you even have the heavens themselves responding in unison to God's commands. We know that story so well. In the Gospels, we hear the apostles exclaim as they watch Jesus calm the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He even commands the wind and the sea. Well, yes, he does. In the book of Daniel, we read of God holding back the jaws of a lion while suspending the life of men inside torturous flame. In Numbers, we see God speaking through the mouth of a donkey. Some think he's repeating that today. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, God directs two nursing cows yoked together to a cart to go against their most urgent instincts and walk away from their newborn young so that they may return the Ark of the Covenant to the Jews. And I could go on literally all night. As you well know, I could. But the conclusion is obvious. There's no such thing as Mother Nature. There is nature, and it has a father who will not share his control over it with anyone. Psalms 135, verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deeps. Now, you, about now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, the very fact that God can control all these things doesn't necessarily mean he chooses to take that control, does it, Steve? For example, are we ready to say God was responsible for the tsunami of last December? Didn't that tragedy happen because God simply allowed natural forces to take their due course and therefore he simply stood back and permitted it to happen? Well, folks, that's a false dichotomy. To argue whether he did it actively or whether he allowed it passively is a distinction without a difference. 
Since we know from Scripture that God can make the waves respond to his word. Ever heard of Noah? Then we know he could have stopped those events if he wanted to. He could have stopped that wave with one word out of his mouth. Just as he created all the waters with one word in the first place. Therefore, what he or, whether he ordained that event by initiating it or whether he ordained it by refraining from stopping it, in either case, he ordained it. He wanted it to happen. Because we know if he didn't, it wouldn't. It's like a little boy who's standing in a park with a baseball and he throws that baseball above his head in the air. And for a moment, as he watches it begin to fall, he decides, will he reach out and catch it? Or will he refrain and let it fall to the ground? Now, whether he chooses to take action and catch it or whether he decides to stop and let it fall to the ground... Either way, it's the boy's choice. Either way, it's his desire that will determine whether that ball lands on the ground or not. And so it is with God. The inescapable conclusion that we come to out of Scripture is that all natural events happen as he desires them to happen. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you've not known me. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these Amos, in chapter 3, verse 6, adds this. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, he's done it. Both Isaiah and Amos are stating essentially the obvious out of Scripture. If we are prepared to give God credit for the good things that happen in his creation, then we must also be prepared to recognize that calamity occurs on his watch also and by his will. You know, I believe our difficulty in accepting that God ordains such things to happen stems from our concerns over the loss of innocent life. We find it hard to accept that God would allow, much less instigate, the taking of innocent life. Here again, I believe the problem can be found not with God and certainly not with his word, but rather in our perspective. Imagine with me a story. A lady living in ancient biblical times in a small desert city. One day she gets up in the morning and leaves the gates of this city and walks outside a few miles away to a river so she can draw water with her jug and return home with it. After filling her jug, she turns to head back and before she's taken even a few steps, she looks up and she's shocked to see huge fireballs descending out of the sky into her city. And before she even realizes what's happening, her city has been engulfed in flames and destroyed. All the people in the city, all her family, including her children, have been killed. The entire city gone. And with her city destroyed, her family killed, her children gone, all that she knows is gone. 
she stands there in the desert with nothing but this jug of water and she falls to her knees. And she cries out at God and says, God, how could you have allowed this calamity to come upon me, upon my city and upon my family? Upon my beloved city, my beloved city of Sodom. You see, the problem is the world has a false understanding of what God defines as innocence and guilt. Of what makes a death justified, of what makes a death unfair. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks for God. There is none who understands. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. James 2.10 adds this. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. Of course, Paul adds in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The payment due to all who sin is death. The definition of sin does not depend on a conscious knowledge that we have sinned. You know, even under the law, there was a sacrifice provided in the law for sins that the nation of Israel didn't even know they had committed. It was for sin that had been done inadvertently, without the doer's knowledge of it. But yet it still required sacrifice because it was still an offense against the Lord. And so there was an atonement provided in the law for it. We sin because we inherit a sin nature from Adam. When Adam sinned, his very nature changed. He became a different creature. Though he was created without sin, once he sinned, he was different. He was fallen. He now had a nature opposed to God, incapable of ever pleasing God. And since God had decreed in the beginning, in his creation, that Adam, just as the animals, would reproduce, would bring forth, would multiply after their kind, after their kind, meaning that whatever nature the parent had, that would be the nature of the child that came from that parent. And so now Adam's new fallen nature would be the nature that he, by necessity, had to pass on to everyone who came after him, to you and to I, to me. Every person that's ever been born with Adam's dead nature is guilty of sin before they take their first breath because they have a nature opposed to God. Even King David recognized this about himself because he said in Psalms 51:1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. In sin we're all 
conceived. Part of our inability to understand how God could be responsible for or even allow events that cause death in the world is because we fail to grasp how truly depraved the human heart is from day one. And the degree to which the world justly deserves God's wrath. As unbelievers, there's never a moment in the life of that human being prior to when they may get faith when they stand sinless before God. And we were all conceived in a fallen nature, as I said. There's only ever been one innocent life that walked this earth, by the way. A life that did not come in Adam's nature, but rather was born by the power of the Holy Spirit in a virgin, so that he would not inherit that nature. And with that innocent nature, he was able to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, a perfect life. That's what made him a substitute for us at the time of judgment, because he had no sin of his own. God has numbered our days, as we said here on an earlier night, and his control over when and where and how our life comes to an end is his and his alone. As is the potter's right over his clay. But where does evil and the demonic realm fit into all this then? Because that's the other thing we have to uh, grasp and struggle with. Some Christians and non-Christians alike are prone to elevate Satan To the point where we almost see him and God as some equally opposed forces. The good God and the bad God. But of course, demonic forces are merely created beings. So they too fall under God's authority. John wrote in his first letter that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Excuse me, in the world. Which means that God is greater than the enemy. By far. We know Jesus, for example, commanded demons to come out of people during his time walking the earth. And they obeyed him. For example, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus does this. I'm sorry, in chapter 1 of Mark, verse 27. They were all amazed, so they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Later in Mark, Mark 5, verse 11. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and 2,000 of them, they were drowned in the sea. The demons had to ask permission from Christ on what they could do and where they could go. Remember Job? Job lost his family and his business, his health, everything he had going for him, because God permitted Satan to do it. Satan essentially was God's agent. He had to ask permission, and then God set the bounds for what he could do. If God didn't want that to happen to Job, it wouldn't have happened. Satan is never outside God's control. He requires God's permission for every act, and God sets the limits of how far he can go. And you know, when we're talking about God's control over demons, we're not simply talking about him setting some limit, about him allowing them to do their thing, but only up to some point. He does that, but that's not all he does. God is seen in Scripture commanding evil, demonic spirits to do his bidding, to accomplish his purpose. He can actively control them, in other words. Judges 9.22. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerobal 
came, uh, might come and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them. And on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. Do you understand what just happened? God sent an evil spirit so that there would be this turmoil between these men. So that the destruction that would occur would occur. In 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. They were very perceptive. And even in the death of his son on the cross, God was in control of the enemy. Consider this. He used Satan through a disciple, Judas, a disciple that Jesus said in John that he knowingly chose so that there would be someone to betray him. And in John 6:70, Jesus says, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Then we know God granted Satan the opportunity to use Judas and the Jewish and Roman leaders of the time to do his bidding and murder his own son. God used Satan and the men who were in that day to murder his own son for you and I. Acts 4:26. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They did, the, the Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, the people of the city, did what your power, God's power, and will had decided beforehand should happen. Perhaps the most powerful example of God's control over the demonic realm still waits for the future. In the final book of the Bible, in Revelation, there comes a moment right before Christ returns to the earth when the world has fallen under the control of a Satan-possessed man known as the Antichrist, also called the Beast. He's going to rule the entire world, Scripture tells us, with the help of seven world leaders who answer to his dictatorial authority and they will relinquish their individual authority over to this man, this Antichrist, so that he may have full authority in the world. And they allow him to do whatever he wishes to do with their armies. And then in Revelation 17, we find out why those seven world rulers are willing to give up their authority to the beast. Revelation 17, 17. For God has put it in their hearts, talking about these kings, to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Consider those words again for just a moment. God directed those kings to give their allegiance, even their very kingdoms, to the control of Satan himself, essentially, through the Antichrist, so that the words of God would be fulfilled. Do you think those kings are going to believe that they're acting on their own initiative? Yeah, it says they will. They think it's their purpose. They have it in their mind. They have it in their will. They've decided this is the right thing to do. This is what I want to do. Maybe they have all kinds of individual reasons. Who knows? But I guarantee you one of the reasons in their mind is not that God wants me to do this. And yet that's exactly where they got the idea from. God gave them that purpose 
so that their purpose would be his purpose. Those, ver- those verses confirm not only God's authority over the demonic realm, but it also introduces us into the final issue for tonight. God's sovereignty to rule in men's lives as well. No doubt this is the hardest issue for us to come to grips with. The one which we're going to struggle the most with. For example, how could God intervene in the decisions of men, men who have their own perspectives and those own perspectives tell them that they're constantly the ones making their own decisions. How can he do that knowing that men are making sinful choices all the time? In fact, I wonder how surprised those future kings are going to be when they learn that it was actually God who gave them the choices they made. And what's so troubling is we know God is not the author of sin. Scripture tells us that. So how can we credit him with the actions of men That are sinful. Jonathan Edwards, a famous preacher in the early days of our nation's history, answered that point by using an analogy of the sun. You know, the sun, by its very nature, gives us light and gives us heat. But when it goes down below the horizon, we then have darkness and cold. But the sun is not the source of darkness and cold. Jonathan Edwards says this, If the sun were the proper cause of cold and darkness, it would be the fountain of these things, as it is the fountain of light and heat. But it's not the fountain of darkness and cold, and you can look at it. Darkness and cold does not come from it. It is not the source of those things, and yet it can produce those things. And so it is with God. God is not the fountain of sin. It does not please him. And yet he is still sovereign over it and he can control it and he can determine where it leads and he can do with it what he will so that all things turn to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is not the author of sin, but that does not mean he can't use it. It does not mean he can't take a sinful heart and direct it toward one sinful act rather than another one. Because if the heart is going to sin, then let it sin in such a way that it supports God's plan. And that is God's decision. And in fact, if you go into Scripture, it's actually quite easy to find example after example of men being directed by God. Of God controlling their lives. Of God controlling their very decision-making process. God used Pharaoh, of course, and his sin to display his glory throughout the world as he freed Israel from bondage. God used Nebuchadnezzar and gave Nebuchadnezzar the desire to go in and take over Israel so that he could... Discipline the Israel, the uh, uh, Jewish nation over their 70 years of failing, their 70 times of failing to honor the Sabbath. So for 70 years they would be in captivity. God ensured that the hatred of men in Jerusalem would be used to scatter the early church. We studied that last week in Acts chapter 8. Think about John the Baptist. God consecrated John the Baptist for a life of ministry even before he was born giving him the Holy Spirit while he was still in the womb and announcing through an angel before he was even breathing his first breath exactly what life he would lead. Did any of these men have a chance to object to how God decided to use them? Did they even understand that in the moment that God was in control and it was not their decision that was actually being made? Do you think any of us ever take time to realize that? Tonight we're going to revisit probably the most famous example of God's sovereignty over the events of men's lives by looking at the story of Joseph. But 
due to the length of the story and the time we have allowed, I'm going to cover it a little differently than I would in the past weeks we've studied. Rather than going to a single passage and studying Joseph, what I want to do instead is I want to piece together events in the story out of Scripture so that we can look across Scripture and pay attention to how God was sovereign, not just through the events of his life, but how God fit his life into an even larger plan. And watch as God's sovereignty works. If you want to turn with me into Genesis, we'll be moving around, but at least you'll be in the vicinity. Genesis 15 is actually where we need to start. Because the story of Joseph actually begins in chapter 15 of Genesis, when God confirms his covenant with Abram. In Genesis 15:13, we hear this. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God planned for the descendants of Abram to be enslaved for four generations in a foreign land. He gives a hint in these verses of why. He says, because the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. Well, so what? You you kind of feel that way, too, when you read that, right? So what? I mean, just because the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete, why can't they just stay in the land until that's true? Why can't they just hang around in Canaan, let the Amorites become complete, whatever that means, and then dispense with them? Why do they have to be enslaved during the meantime? Well, if we're going to understand that, we need to go to chapter 38 of Genesis. Chapter 37 is where Joseph is actually taken by his brothers, and we'll talk that in a minute. But chapter 38 actually gives us the reason why they're going to go to the trouble. Why God goes to the trouble to put his nation in Egypt for so long. In chapter 38, we're going to see Judah, the man from whom the Messiah eventually comes, from the tribe of Judah, disobeying God's direction by marrying a Canaanite wife. Remember, the nation of Israel is settled in the promised land, in Canaan, but they haven't taken possession of the land. They're still surrounded by the native peoples, the Canaanites, including families like the Amorites. And these people are horribly corrupt. The Canaanite culture is well known for the depravity they had in their culture and to include child sacrifice to the god Baal. But Judah chooses to take a wife from the Canaanites. Together they produce three sons and a daughter in this chapter. The sons are so depraved that God literally puts one of them to death because he's so evil. The other one God puts to death because he refuses to produce heirs for Judah. So now Judah is distraught. He won't give his only remaining son a wife either because he's afraid it's the whole marrying process that's responsible for the kids dying off. And so now we actually have the possibility that the Jewish line of Judah might come to an end in Judah. And that can't happen. Because for God, that is the line through whom the Messiah will come. It is just as God said it would be that the Canaanite culture would be a threat to the existence of the Jewish nation. And so that brings us to Joseph, having summarized chapter 38. In chapter 37 of Genesis, we'll read some verses. Joseph, if you know the story, receives a dream from God, actually two dreams. 
And he tells his elder brothers about them. In these dreams, essentially, God tells Joseph one day he will rule over his brothers and his parents and over his father. Joseph tells his brothers about these dreams. And, of course, it angers their brothers, his brothers, because they're already jealous of him. He was the dad's favorite son. And so they plot against him. They determine one day they're going to destroy him. And they say it's so that his dream will never come true. Look at chapter 37, verse 18. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they, speaking of the brothers, plotted against him, against Joseph, to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. You see, the dreams are the reason for their hatred in this moment. The dreams are the thing they're trying to put an end to. And as they're considering killing him at the last minute, they see traitors come out of nowhere, heading to Egypt. So the brothers take the opportunity, rather than killing their brother, to get some money for him. So they sell him to these traitors as a slave. Look in verse 25. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up, lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. All right. First question of the night. Whose idea was it to sell Joseph into slavery? Was it the brother's idea? Well, consider that later, after Joseph becomes the second in command of Egypt, you all have heard this story, right? It's a joke. I know you all have heard this story. After he becomes second in command of Egypt, his brothers eventually come seeking food because God has brought a great famine on the world. And as they come before him, not knowing who he is because he's dressed like an Egyptian, they bow down before him, as would have been appropriate before a man of this much power. And later, of course, as the rest of their family joins them, they also will come and pay respects before this man. And when they do that, the dream of Joseph comes true. So again, I ask you, whose idea was it that Joseph would be sold into slavery? Consider that God gave Joseph a dream that he knew would cause the brothers to have so much hatred they would act against him. And in their acting against their own brother, in an effort to thwart the dream, they made the dream come true. When they finally decide to take that action, the scripture says they believe that their choice in that moment is designed to stop the dream from coming true. So in their minds and in their will, they're doing what they want to do. And folks, that's what we always think. That's what we always think. It's always us. It's called pride. We all have it. But of course, their action only ensured that the dream would come true. So in the end, Psalms 105 explains it this way. Verse 17. God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him and the ruler of people's 
and set, free, set him free. He made him lord over his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Listen to that last line. To imprison God's princes at will that Joseph might teach his elders, his older brothers, wisdom. God sent Joseph to Egypt, it says in the first verse I read. Not the brothers, God. It was God's plan that Joseph would be enslaved and then later imprisoned. And we're told here in Psalms it was so that Joseph might be tested by God. Genesis 45, 7, jumping ahead in Genesis for just a second. Joseph recognized this is very fact when he tells the brothers, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. That's what Joseph said about his own imprisonment. In 45, verse 8, he says, So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler through all the land of Egypt. And in chapter 50, even, Joseph says this in verse 19. He said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people's lives. You see the dichotomy, the, the built-in conundrum there? They meant it for evil, but God gave it to them for good. It wasn't their choice, it was God's. God didn't produce sin, however, that was their fault. But God used their sin for greater good. Now, our story is not quite over. Because for many years now, the nation of Israel will be in Egypt. Now that the brothers have been joined by their families, the entire clan of Israel is now in Egypt. And if you know anything about Egyptians and their view of sheep herders, they despise them. The last thing the Egyptians wanted to do was mix their culture with the culture of these Israelites. So they stuck them up in Goshen, kind of a little backwater part of the country, and said, you guys stay up there. And that was good for the, Egypt, for the Israelites because it was great farming land. Remember when God said that he was going to send the nation of Israel into Egypt because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete? Well, now we can understand what he was doing. Because in Abram's day, there was no Jewish nation. And even in the day of Joseph, there was only 70 clans. We're talking about a fairly small number of people. There was certainly no army. And yet we learn later in the Old Testament that it was through the Jewish armies that God intended to judge the iniquity of the Canaanite peoples, including the Amorites. So if God desires to use Jewish armies to destroy the ungodly peoples of Canaan, then it's going to be necessary for him to allow time for the Jewish people to grow and produce enough people as a nation that they can actually field a powerful army. But if he leaves them where they were, they'll be so corrupted by the Canaanite people, they'll never have a chance to grow to that point. So instead, he takes them to a rich country and he sets them apart from the Egyptians. In fact, he enslaves them so that there was no possibility they could mix with the people in Egypt. They would be forever simply Jews within a larger culture, protected, if you will, from the possibility of ever becoming part of the Egyptian nation. And then, on the day God appointed, on exactly the day God said it would happen, Moses brings them out of Egypt, nearly two million of them, according to Scripture. And just as God promised Abraham 430 years earlier, it happened. Now, I want you to think for just a moment about all the thousands 
if not millions of people, and there are millions upon millions of decisions and choices and actions that had to occur in those 430 years in order to ensure that the outcome would go exactly as God planned, even to the very day, 430 years later. Think about all that had to transpire. How many marriages had to take place with just the right two people? How many children had to be born at just the right time? How many lives had to be just long enough to last so that on the day God wanted everything to happen, it would happen? We're talking about God in control down to the last detail in the lives of millions of people so that his word would not be void. And that means he's doing that today with you and with me and with millions and literally billions of people on this earth. It's stories like these that would cause us, I think, to take a second look at where we've drawn that line around our bodies. If you're like me, as you've read scripture, you've been forced to kind of erase that line and move it in so many times that right now it's pressing up against your body. In fact, it's pushing against your pride. And it's staring you in the face. And you're asking, what's under my control? What is mine and what is God's? And God's asking you, who are you to dare draw a line between me and my creation? Because I think that's all, it's where we all begin, isn't it? We all begin, essentially, unbelievers, with a line so far away from our body we can't even see God. Everything is under our control. And then as we become Christians and begin to know the Word, that line moves steadily and steadily closer to us. But what God wants you to understand is drawing that line, that's not your right. That's His. In fact, He made the stick. He made the sand. He made you. And what he would prefer to do is by his finger reach into your body and draw a line around your heart and call that his. But maybe you're one of those people in here who still has that line so far away that you don't even know God. We've talked in this series, this is the sixth night, we have one more week to go, but we've talked throughout this series about how much God controls this world because He loves us and He has a purpose in that control. But if right now none of that makes any sense to you, if right now you're sitting there thinking, well, whatever this God is you're talking about, I don't know Him, I've never experienced any of this kind of control in my life. Well, maybe the first problem is, do you know Him and does He know you? Scripture tells us that to know God, to have faith in His Son, is the only way by which we can be reconciled to Him. And though I'm sure you hear it here many days on Sundays, perhaps right now in this room somewhere there is somebody who has walked into this place for the first time. Maybe you meant to go to Sonic and you took a wrong turn. Maybe a friend brought you, maybe a relative brought you. Maybe this is your only day in a church. Maybe this is your only chance to hear that Christ died for your sin. Maybe this is the day appointed for salvation. 
Maybe you're planning on coming back. But maybe you'll get hit by a bus when you walk outside this door. You don't know what days you have left. You don't know if this is the last day you'll ever live, much less the last time you might hear of Christ. So I give you this challenge now. If the word has touched your heart, if the Holy Spirit is working in you and you feel that I'm talking about you right now, I am. And God is speaking to you through the word. And he is asking you. He is asking you now and maybe for the last time. To confess that you cannot work yourself to heaven. You cannot earn it. You will not deserve it. And if you wait to find out after your death, you'll only know too late how true that is. But today you can change that. You can confess that since you cannot do it on your own, you will ask God to do it for you by the work of Christ on the cross. That when he died, having no sin of his own, he could be a substitutionary payment for your sin. There's no magic words. There's no special action required. It's a change of heart done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we go to prayer to finish tonight, I'll ask for all those gathered with me here to bow their heads and to close their eyes and pray so that those who may make this decision may do it without fear. Though remember, Christ said, if you are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of you before the Father. He asks for a public confession. He asks for a public statement because he did a very public thing for you. Father, I pray now by the power of the Holy Spirit that as we have read your word and understood your complete sovereignty, Father, that you have control, Father, over everything. That there is nothing in your creation, Father, that is not yours to do with as you will please. That even men, Father, Sinful men who make decisions by sinful hearts with sinful, selfish purposes. Still, Father, through that you work to accomplish good things as you deem. And in this room, Father, tonight, I do not know, but I pray, Lord, that if there may be someone who, though they have sat through your word and heard it and understand by the Holy Spirit what it is telling them, if they have yet, Father, to make that response, I pray, Lord, now would be the time. And I pray now that if there is someone who feels that way, if the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart and you feel that you know Christ, you know he died for you and you know that that sacrifice is your only hope, then I pray that you would have the strength, you would have the courage, you would have the humility to simply stand. Stand where you are. Stand and by your standing, confess that you are ready to live a life by the power of God in you rather than by your own power in futility. And that by this confession, you realize you are made anew, forever a child of God. And that by your changed heart, you may live to give him glory. Father, we pray for the men and women in this room now, and for any who may be hearing this message, Father, that if they feel you tugging on their heart, that they would have the courage and the humility to respond. And Father, as your kingdom grows, one man and one woman at a time, we pray, Father, that all according to your will would be given to you in glory, that all we do and all we say, Father, would be pleasing to you, and that all lives changed, Father, would be a testimony to your love and to your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.